Hi, I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Before we begin, I just want to quickly mention that because of a tropical storm that hit the New York area, I had to record this episode from my car using a battery charger and um, taking some Wi-Fi from my friend's house. So at certain points, you may hear some raindrops pelting the roof. Apologies. (laughs) Anyway... Today, we'll be speaking with Galang Tubton, a Buddhist monk, meditation teacher, and author of the new book, A Monk's Guide to Happiness, Meditation in the 21st Century. An ordained monk in the Kagyu Samye Ling Tibetan Buddhist Monastery in Scotland, Tubton teaches mindfulness to medical students and has lectured at Oxford University and for the United Nations. With so many of us having retreated for months now indoors and an embracing of introspection, if not meditation being a large part of that, we felt it was important to connect with Tubton at this particular moment. Let's get him on the line. Hi, Tubton. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I wanted to start with the fact that you were very sick with the coronavirus earlier this year. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit about what that experience was like and how you handled it. It was pretty intense. I got sick in mid-March and I was very, very sick for about three weeks and then three or four months of recovery. It hit me very hard. It seems to be that some people uh, get it more mildly, some people get it very strongly. So in my case, it was pretty bad. Mm. And I definitely found when I could meditate, it helped with the situation, definitely. Mm. I was thinking it would be helpful also just for listeners, those who aren't as well-versed as as you in the world of meditation and mindfulness, if you could talk about the differences between the two and define them for us. Well, in many ways, those two words are kind of interchangeable, meditation and mindfulness. It's all about a practice of training, training the mind. Of course, it comes from, from an ancient discipline. It originates in Buddhism and I myself, I'm a Buddhist monk, so that's how I've learned it within the Buddhist tradition. But nowadays it's become very widespread and people are practicing meditation without necessarily affiliating themselves with a religion or a, a, a system of training. They're, they're, they're just meditating and it's become very popular. And sometimes people call it mindfulness instead of calling it meditation. Some people prefer the word mindfulness, maybe because it has more of a neutral sound to it. Maybe the word meditation sort of suggests Eastern philosophy and Buddhism. And for some people, that's off-putting. They want something more neutral. So Mm. they might use the word mindfulness. But where I'm coming from is just the the technicality of it all. Uh, You know, I, I try to help people learn these techniques. And on a very technical level, it's simply about sitting down and taking time to focus and using techniques to be in the present moment and kind of change your relationship with your own thoughts. Mm. And in that sense, you are meditating, but the mindfulness aspect is when your mind gets distracted, you come back to the breath, for example, if you're, if you're using your breath as your focus. 
And so that mindfulness is the, the ability to come back into the moment. Mm. There's something else though as well, which is mindfulness also refers to what you do outside of the meditation session because it's really important to also have moments of mindfulness throughout the day without sitting down and doing a formal practice, just, you know, standing somewhere or sitting somewhere or working at your desk or cooking or washing your hands. You can do these activities mindfully. You can kind of have these little drop-ins throughout the day of mindful presence. To those who aren't following a meditation practice at the moment, how would you recommend for them to start? Well, traditionally, it's always being about going to an instructor, going to a class, and then you can kind of, uh, you know, get instruction and talk. But of course, things are different now. And over the last few months, we've been in lockdown and that's no longer available. So people are using the internet and people are mm -hmm. uh, using apps and people are finding teachings on online and using those. People should just do what, what suits them really. And I think the main thing is to find out what a technique is and, and get it from a good source. So a, a good teacher might be teaching it online or, or in a book or on an app and you, you learn it. But I think then you can just do it for yourself because people assume you have to have guided meditation the whole time. You have to always have somebody telling you how to do it. Mm -hmm. But actually, that's just for learning. And then after that, you can just do it. Can you help us understand, and this is connected to you talking about breath earlier, how we can use breath to help us control feelings of panic or feelings of sort of unease, feelings that seem to be popping up quite a bit right now? Yeah. Well, the main thing about meditation is that you are teaching your mind to have less power over you. You know, these thoughts and feelings, especially things like anxiety and fear, that's when we've lost ownership of our own mind. Mm -hmm. We're being taken into a negative state that we don't want to be in. It's almost like losing control of the wheel of your car when you're driving and the car is now going off the road. Mm -hmm. So the way meditation works is that if you are sitting still and focusing on your breathing, your mind is occupied with the breath. And then the mind does get distracted. You start thinking about stuff or maybe even anxiety comes up or just random, uh, very mundane thoughts like, what shall I eat for lunch? And your mind goes there, but you're learning how to then gently bring your attention back to the breath. Mm -hmm. So then when things like anxiety and fear and um, unhappiness start to take hold, maybe somebody who's meditated for a while has a more of an ability to let that stuff go and put themselves into a more positive present state. You mentioned earlier when you were quite ill with, with COVID that when you could meditate, you would. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious how this period, both when you were sick and in that extended recovery affected your practice. Did this, did, I guess, did the challenges of this moment push you into new areas of your mind that even after 20 plus years you hadn't been? Oh yeah. It was pretty humbling because I, I realized how much more work I have to do on my own mind. When I was very sick, I was, I was extremely sick. I had very high fevers and I was uh, finding it very difficult to breathe. Mm. I probably should have been in hospital, but I was actually in a very remote part of Scotland, so there was no help. So I was, I was very sick. And then I found that with that situation, that there was a lot of fear 
and anxiety coming up. And that would take hold of me. But then there were moments when I remembered to use meditation mm. and try to just sit with the fear, mm. almost like embracing it or accepting it, not pushing it away, just being with that moment. And I definitely found that that made it easier to cope with what was happening. Was it conscious? Were you kind of having an inner dialogue? This, you know, people often talk about the multitudes of selves that we confront within a meditation. Were you having an inner dialogue thinking, you know, what are you afraid of? Or was it the intellectual side of it that was causing you to have more fear? Was it just the meditation that brought you out of it? Well, it's more that I maybe over the years have developed more of a habit of meditating. So that habit was more available to me. Mm. But I have to be honest, I, I was falling apart, really, and it was hard to keep that habit going. But the moments I managed to do it, it was really, really effective. Mm. And it definitely taught me a lot about fear. It showed me how when we're in a state of fear, the situation we're in is is magnified and multiplied. And the physical symptoms you're experiencing are definitely made worse through fear. Mm. Yeah, the cortisol. I mean, you were experiencing a stress on your immune system as well. So I wonder if you were aware of that, how the fear was physically affecting you. Sure, sure. And also when, you, when you're gasping for breath, I mean, it's a very visceral thing. You think you're dying and you, you can't breathe. So the fear comes up and the, the feeling of panic, it's very frightening. And yeah, the, the, the body is releasing huge amounts of stress hormones, cortisol, adrenaline, and actually, when I came out of the more severe phase of the sickness and was in recovery, I felt like there was still a lot of adrenaline in my body. Mm. My heart was still beating very fast. It was almost like the, the stress hormones were still flooding me. And I found going for gentle walks really helped to calm that down. Because you mm. have to kind of maybe ease it out of your system right. when you've been through a trauma. With physical change. Yeah, you have to be very gentle with yourself. That's really important. And I, I've learned over the years how to be more gentle with myself and look after myself a bit better than maybe I would have 20 years ago. Mm. I wanted to ask you a bit about freedom because I've heard you speak about it in the past and you have such a, an interesting perspective on freedom. And the basic question is, you know, deep down in our minds, how free are we actually? Yeah, this is, this is the thing, isn't it? We, freedom is a really important concept for all of us and it's something we are passionate about, and it's very important to us. And in certain ways, we manage to achieve freedom in our lives, in our lifestyles. Obviously, not everybody, and there's a lot of the opposite going on in the world that we know about, but we try our best to be as free as possible and not to be controlled by others and not to be told what to do, but to make our own choices. But the kind of freedom that interests me from a meditation point of view is really deep down inside, how free are we? Because even if we may feel that we have achieved freedom in our lifestyle and in our intellectual life or our, uh, how we live or what we do, what about inside with our feelings? When worry takes over or, or upset or just a bad mood, well, who's, who's really free in that situation? We're not. Our mind is doing things we don't want our mind to do. And so there isn't, there isn't internal freedom. Mm. And so meditation is, is all about 
going deep within and learning to free our minds so that we can become our own boss. You know, you can be your own boss in terms of your profession or your lifestyle, but to be your own boss in terms of your mind is a whole other story, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I've heard it described as you're sort of chairman of the board at the at the boardroom table and all the selves are there and through meditation you can shut someone down and, and elevate someone else's voice within that room. I think it's choice, isn't it? Making choices. Yeah. And so in my book, I talk a lot about the choice of happiness. And that sounds like a bit of a sort of superficial phrase at first, you know, choose happiness. But I'm really talking from this very technical point of view around, can we start to choose not to go down negative pathways of thinking and feeling in our mind? Can we instead learn to choose to put ourselves in a more positive state? Mm -hmm. And that choice is freedom, isn't it? Speaking of choice, as a senior monk, you make a choice to commit to certain principles, sort of rules that you live by. Well, for me, it, it was, I started being a monk without the intention of doing it long term because I, I became like a novice where you try it out. It, I joined my monastery when I was 21 and the, the situation was that you could be a monk for a year. And that was my intention, just to stay for one year. And it was a sort of training course and it didn't seem like it would be any longer than that. But I stayed. I After my year, I decided to try another year. And then I tried another year. I kept it kind of extending my, my contract, you could call it. <laughs> and it was after about three or four years of being a short-term monk that I decided, actually, I want to do this for my whole life. So then I, I took the vows to be a monk for my whole life. And that's obviously a bigger commitment. But for me, it was nice to be able to work up towards that because I entered the monastery with no intention of staying long term. It was just going to be a, like a sabbatical or a retreat, almost like rehab or something like that. Mm. And then it changed. It became a situation of, no, this is the path I'd like to follow. And I want to take these vows, not as rules or restrictions, but more as doorways to freedom, doorways to developing what I want to develop in my life. And so from the outside, it may seem strict. You know, monks, we are celibate and we don't drink or smoke or, you know, there are many rules we, we follow. You could call them rules, but the attitude is, is not about, oh, we're not allowed to do this. It's more that we've chosen to do something else instead that we find mm. interesting and fulfilling. Not for everybody, it's, it's just what we find interesting and fulfilling is to devote our time to meditation and study and teaching and, and doing the things monks do. And those vows that you've taken, which challenge our, our core desires in a way. Yes. What do they do for you by releasing them from your, from your focus? What, what does that allow for? I think it's all about giving yourself more, more time for really immersing yourself in practice. You know, because I don't have other commitments like family and and work. I'm totally a monk. And I, I, for many years, I lived in the monastery. Now, nowadays, I travel a lot. But it meant I had the time to do things such as long retreats. And I did a retreat that was four years long. And that's difficult and, and challenging, but it's also a luxury, which many people don't have. So mm. taking these vows has given me the time and space to be able to do these things and to dedicate my time to service, you know, to serving others, trying to serve 
the world in some way. And then also on a more internal level, when you take these vows, you, yeah, you, you are challenging your own desires and your own mind and your own sense of boredom and distraction and need. And then you've got to kind of look at that and start to work with the mind and work with attachment and grasping and materialistic desires and all of that and start to analyze them. And it's not about saying, oh, this is all bad and terrible. It's more about asking yourself, what really makes me happy? I wanted to roll back a little bit because we've we've sort of grazed over it, but it's such a profound story. I want to make sure we have it on this program. You're 20, 21 years old. You're living in New York. And somehow from there, you make a decision to try out this year. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about what your life was like before that first retreat and then what it was like to move through it? So I was not interested in meditation at all. You know, I, w I was kind of quite a hedonistic person. I was into the kind of party lifestyle and I was, I was living in New York in the, when was this, the early 90s. Things were quite wild in those days in, in New York. Pre-Giuliani. <laughs> yeah, and I, I was very unhappy. And my way of avoiding that unhappiness was just to be really busy and go, uh, go out a lot and party a lot and not really look at my mind and ne never be alone with my thoughts because my thoughts were so frightening. I was really stressed and really kind of unhealthy mentally and physically. And actually it led to quite a dramatic, quite severe burnout, which was very sudden. I mean, with burnout, sometimes it creeps up on people. They're just slowly getting more and more stressed and then they get, get worse and worse. In my case, it was literally one day to the next. I woke up in the morning with heart palpitations and unable to get out of my bed. And mm. I thought I'd been poisoned or something. I didn't know what had happened to me. I went to the doctor and they said, you are incredibly stressed. Your heart is beating too fast. You, you've had a breakdown. And I was sick for a few months like that. Mm -hmm. And that completely stopped me in my tracks. It was during that time that I thought, wow, you've really fallen apart. You, you've got to do something mm -hmm. to get yourself back together. And just the way life works out, you know, things happen in, in the right way sometimes. And at that time, an old school friend of mine told me about a Buddhist monastery in Scotland. And they'd started this new thing where you could be a monk for a year. And that idea just seemed fascinating <laughs> to me. Mm. Um, I'd never practiced Buddhism officially, but my parents are Buddhist. And so it was kind of lurking in the background. It was something I had some kind of faith in. I, I knew it was a good thing, but I didn't know much about it. And just this idea of going to be a monk for a year felt like a really good way of putting myself back together. So I arrived at the monastery incredibly fragile, still very unwell and very kind of broken. And mm. through the guidance of the Tibetan lamas who were there and, and being in the community with other people, often with similar stories as me, that really helped me put myself back together and, and meditating, living a healthy lifestyle, no intoxicants, uh, healthy food, fresh air, all of that, the whole combination of it really healed me and my health became great and I started to feel this is a path I want to follow more deeply. Mm. But you were looking at over a thousand days. I'd taken the commitment for a year, yeah, but during that year I, I never really would be sitting there thinking when is this over because I was just enjoying it. 
it actually started to get more tough in the second year. The mm. first year was kind of nice. It was a relief. And then I, <laughs> I took vows for a second year. And during that second year, I went into solitary retreat because I thought now, now I want to really do this meditation thing more deeply. So I went into a retreat house on the hill above the monastery, you know, with the guidance of, of my teachers. And I went into a nine month long retreat on my own. Mm. And that was really, really difficult because then you are just backed into a corner with your own thoughts. No speaking. Very little speaking because I was on my own, but occasionally my teachers would come and check I was okay. How did you spend that time? I mean, nine months? Meditating. You're, you're doing a very um, intensive schedule of meditation practices. I mean, I think if you're just sitting in a room with nothing, you would go really nuts. But because you've got a schedule of practice to do every day, that holds you. And also you're, yeah, you're working on the mind. And I definitely found that during that period, I started to have to look at the mind states that had got me into trouble in the first place. Mm. I started to discover a real deep sense of self-loathing mm -hmm. that had kind of, I'd carried that for years, but now I was really identifying it and seeing it in all its horror. And I started to work with that and work with trying to develop more compassion and more acceptance and be less self-destructive. It was a pretty uh, intense time and difficult but transformative and useful as well. And what became of the next three years? So I came out of that nine month retreat and came back into the monastery and then started to do, I think more shorter retreats. And I just kind of got into the whole thing of doing retreats and meditating. And then this thought was germinating inside me. Maybe I want to do this for life because there was a very clear distinction between a short term monk or a life monk and the different commitment. And I was thinking about that and, there was also part of me that was horrified thinking, wow, are you really going to do this? Are you, are you going to just give up everything and be a monk? And I would speak to some of my friends and they'd say, have you joined a cult? Do we need to come and rescue you? What's going on? <laughs> and I said, no, it's not a cult. I can leave any time, but it's kind of grabbing me and I'm really interested in it. And so there was a period of, of real soul searching about what am, am I going to do this? And then I think it was in year four that I took the commitment to be a life monk. And then it was really like, okay, this is it. This is what you're doing now. Wow. You mentioned this four-year-long retreat you took. This was in mm. June 2009 alongside 20 other monks in this remote part of Scotland. You were completely cut off. No phones, no internet, no newspapers, and, and basically had no idea of what was happening in the outside world. What did this reveal to you? about globalization and about how we live. Yeah, actually it was 2009 that we finished. We, we went in in 2005. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'd already been a monk for 12 years by then and I wanted to go deeper and do more retreat. The retreats I'd done up until that point were shorter and now this notion of doing a four year long retreat. Yeah, it's very cut off. You're completely remote. It was on a Scottish island you know, off the west coast of Scotland no phones, no internet, no news, one letter a month from your family. Wow. You have no idea what's happening in the outside world and you have no interaction with anyone from outside. And you are meditating intensively. I mean, the schedule is you know, 15 or 16 hours a day of meditation and every day is the same. There's no day off. There's no break. You're just constantly doing this. And then during the second year of the retreat, 
you all take a vow of total silence for five or six months. And so that gets even more intense. And when I came out of that retreat, I was back in the city. I came down to London and just noticed how things had changed and things had sped up. Because when you go out of it and come back in, you notice it more strongly. Mm. And of course, those particular four years were quite interesting years in terms of technology. Right. During those four years, the iPhone was launched. And Facebook, <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, they all happened yeah. during those four years. And so when I came out of retreat, I just noticed how that connectivity had sped up people's lifestyles and there was much more le higher levels of distraction mm. and different ways of communicating. And one of the main things I noticed was how invasive information had become. Now, before my retreat, or also in the early days when we had no internet, you, you'd have to seek out things. You, you want to find out something or you want to know the news, you choose to switch on the news or buy a newspaper. And now there's this new reality where it's invasive. It's invading our screens all the time. And there's a very fast-paced flow of information. And I became really interested in what that's doing to our minds. Mm. Is it helpful? Is it harmful? Well, there are helpful aspects to it, communication and education. But the harmful side is this sort of fight or flight situation that we're put in all the time. And also just looking at the way the advertising industry can now uh, monopolize our minds. We're, we're constantly shown imagery that tells us we're not good enough. Mm. So I think we've become more insecure as a culture. We've become more grasping, more needy, more, more of a sense of dissatisfaction. Nobody tells us be grateful. They tell us be ungrateful and go shopping. <laughs> <laughs> and this is to say nothing of, you know, instant gratification and the, the sort of dopamine hits that are designed into these technological systems. Over the past decade, it's just increased even more. It's threatening our sense of agency. Do you think that a rise in awareness around these issues will, will come to the fore through or around mindfulness? Like, do you think mindfulness can become a, a good tool for combating these things? I do. I do. Because I think our attention is the very thing that people are trying to steal all the time. In fact, our attention is the most valuable commodity for advertisers, isn't it? Mm. Take our attention, mm -hmm. make us want something. And I think we need to learn to guard our attention a little bit more. It's very scary when it's called the attention economy. <laughs> yes. And of course, now with things like facial recognition software, you know, you have stores where the videos change according to who's walking past because they can see the demographics. So you feel, when you know this, you feel quite manipulated. Mm. When you know more about that, I think it then gives you a feeling that you want to not be manipulated. You want to be your own boss. And so I think if you practice mindfulness, you're actually learning to train your attention to be in the moment and to be thinking about or perceiving what you want to be perceiving. Mm. So it gives you more mental stability in a time of technological chaos and distraction. You mentioned this idea of sort of grasping could you talk about that concept and how it leads to stress? Well, I think one of the main aspects of grasping is our search for happiness. I talk a lot about how the search for happiness is the very thing that prevents us getting it. Because our minds are 
they work according to habit. Whatever you perpetuate as a mental state becomes more of itself. So mm. the more we're searching for happiness, the more we're always going to be searching because we're building a habit of searching. We're in this culture now where we're told happiness comes from material things, from things around us. Nobody tells us it comes from within. You know, if, if we told people that, the thing would collapse, wouldn't it? The wheels would stop turning. People would start to rely on their own minds instead of constantly grabbing onto material things. Mm. So we're told you need this, you need that. And then, of course, you need more because you, we think, oh, I will be happy when I get what I want. So then I work really hard to get what I want. And then maybe I get it, maybe I don't. But if I do get it, then I'm horrified to discover I want something else. The, the wanting has just continued. It's like mm. jumped over it looking for the next thing. So I'm not satisfied. I'm just wanting more. The more I want, the more I want. So mm. that grasping, that searching means we never actually reach any conclusion. We're just always hungry. And so the meditation process is about discovering that if you relax within, the happiness you wanted was already there. We are happier than we thought because we were looking in the wrong place. We were looking outside instead of inside. Hmm. And I'm not suggesting we should all go and live in a cave and, and have nothing <laughs> to do with the world and never go shopping. I'm talking about balance. Yeah. I'm talking about balancing things so that you can do all that stuff, but with less of a need, less of a grasping, more, more able to let go and, and be present. In your book, you write about meditation not as a luxury, but as a matter of survival. Mm, I think it has become that. I do. Yeah, I'd love for you to elaborate on the sort of how meditation has become commodified in a way as a luxury, how we're, we're quickly moving in that direction with an industry that's being built around meditation as luxury, not survival. Well, it can be that meditation becomes seen as a kind of well-being exercise, and it is to a certain extent, and people are stressed, and people are anxious, and it's great if we can give them a technique that makes them feel better, that's great, but there is a problem when people start to view meditation as like a spa treatment. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's a problem is because when you meditate, it doesn't instantly make you feel good. So you're going to try it and then think, well, that didn't work. I didn't get a hit from it. I didn't get a buzz. <laughs> it didn't make me feel something. So I'm going to go and do something else. And so the meditation then becomes very materialistic. I mean, we're kind of back to grasping, aren't we? We're back to grasping after a good feeling. Mm. So I do think that's one of the downsides of how you describe this commodification of meditation. It's become an industry. It's become a thing. And maybe people are just viewing it as a relaxation technique, a quick fix, and they're not seeing it as a deeper path of mental transformation. Mm. That takes time. That takes time. And, but there are other things we do in our lives that are similar. I, I often compare meditation to exercise. And I often say to people, if you're going to the gym or you're going running or doing something like that, you're not going to get a quick instant result. You don't do some push-ups and then go and look in the mirror and suddenly you've got a, a massive muscles. You, you have to keep exercising every day and then slowly your body changes. So there is a kind of patience and ability to let go that we already know about through exercise. So if we can transpose that to meditation and think, it's not going to work straight away and we're not trying to get something out of it tomorrow. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's a, and also it's, a, it's deeper than just feeling good. It's about, it's about mental transformation. It's also about compassion. Mm. It's about becoming less 
egocentric. It's about connecting to the world in a, uh, with love and kindness. It's not just about fixing your own stress. It's about becoming a person on this planet who wants to benefit others and benefit the world and, and be ethical and kind and generous and grateful and all those qualities which are great for our mental health, but also important for the mental health of the society around us. I wanted to quickly, before we had finished, talk about these sort of five pillars that you discuss for cultivating happiness, meditation, mindfulness, gratitude, compassion, and overall well-being. Can you talk about a little bit about how all five are sort of interdependent, how you can't just maybe choose one? Well, I think they all have one thing in common, which is the mind. They're all about taking responsibility for your own thoughts and emotions. Every aspect of what I'm talking about is to do with looking within and changing your thought processes. That's the only way to find greater happiness. And also it's the only way to heal our culture and our society and help those around us. It has to start with the mind. Everything starts with the thought, doesn't it? And I think compassion is also the underlying theme of all of those. Compassion for yourself and compassion for others. And I think we've reached a point in our history where if we don't talk more seriously about compassion and helping others, we are going to implode as a society. We, we can't carry on. Mm. And this pandemic has shown us that very strongly, hasn't it? That if we don't look after each other, better that there is there is no hope for the future and then obviously the, the climate situation as well if we carry on being greedy and not thinking of others we are going to suffer our families are going to suffer so now is the time when we need mindful compassion in our education system i mean here in the uk that they are bringing mindfulness into schools it's becoming a thing where they might start their day with a mindful exercise or they might start the class so Teach that to the kids and then they will grow up to be, you know, tomorrow's culture and society, tomorrow's leaders. They'll have that skill and hopefully that will become a reality in our world. Hmm. You mentioned just so much that's bubbling up right now in, in the midst of this global pandemic we're all experiencing. What's your greatest hope as we eventually emerge out of it? Well, it is a dreadful situation. There's no way of saying, oh, there's something good about it. It's a dreadful situation, but there are things going on that we can look at. For example, the fact that being in lockdown, we've managed to give the planet a rest. The planet has had some time to do some repair work because we've stopped flying around so much and damaging the earth. I hope we can solve this pandemic and start to live normal lives again, but do we want to go back to normal in the sense of what normal was before. Maybe not, maybe there do need to be some changes. And I wonder if being in lockdown, obviously for many people, lockdown has been incredibly traumatic. You know, some people have had the luxury of being in lockdown in a nice place and being able to meditate or work from home. For other people, it's been a very harsh, abusive situation, very traumatic. But I do hope that many people have had time to kind of have a bit of introspection and look at what's important in their lives. Because now we haven't been able to do all the things we were filling our lives with. It's been us alone in our houses or just with our families. Has that maybe made us more conscious, becoming more aware of what's important, taking care of our health, taking care of each other's health, 
taking care of the environment. Maybe we can think differently because we've had time to think differently. So that's my hope is that the time alone or in a more isolated situation, maybe it's been like a retreat. Mm. When you come out of a retreat, like when you come out of a meditation retreat, you come out with a new motivation to live your life differently. I would love it if everybody could have that kind of thinking. Okay, we're now out of retreat. What did we learn? How can we use this productively for our world? Mm. Thank you too, Ten. This is so great. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.